You guys can be seated. If you've got your Bibles with you, you read your Bible on your phone, you can open them or click over. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you need a Bible, we've got a few on the table over here to my left and uh, your right. So if you need one, you can hop up and grab one from there. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen for you to follow along with. This is our last Sunday in Mark before a break in August, and then we'll pick back up in Mark in September. And so um, I'm excited because I look forward to preaching this last Sunday in July now for the third year like Christmas morning because I know once I preach tonight I have four weeks off of having to get a sermon ready uh, which is nice uh, to be able to breathe and relax a little bit and work on some other things for the church and we've got a great lineup of guys coming in to preach for us in August and so um, we'll have more up about that on social media as the weeks go by but we're going to be in Mark 5 1 through 20. Now we a couple weeks ago, we went through the four parables of word that Jesus shares in Mark 4. And then as you end Mark 4 and you get into Mark 5, there are four parables of deed that Jesus does. And so last week, we looked at the first parable of deed that Jesus did, where Jesus displays his power over nature by calming the storm. And so tonight, we're going to look at his second parable of deed, where he heals a man possessed by demons. And so that's where we're going to be headed tonight. But if, if we're honest with ourselves, we often struggle with how to rightly talk about and explain our belief in the spiritual world, angels, demons, Satan, heaven, even, hell, etc. It's all to one degree or another being co-opted by the culture in a way that makes f- serious thought and discussion very difficult to come by. And beyond that, most famous people talk about in a most romantic way the role that their demons have played in the art that they've created. If you were to Google famous people's quotes about demons, it is stunning the amount of famous people who attribute their ability to be creative to having their own personal demons that they are wrestling with. Tom Reese, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Black Count, said, The demons you have are what motivate you to make art. This is what drives the detective. This is what drives the painter. This is what drives the writer. A conflicting urge to forget pain and at the same time remember it and fight for some kind of justice. I know these powerful things are inside of me and everyone in some way or another. You can read hundreds of other quotes from very famous people who are esteemed by the culture who give a certain amount of respect and appreciation to their own personal demons that they wrestle with. And when some of these most famous celebrities die for various causes and reasons, more often than not, what you hear is that their death is attributed to these very same demons that somehow provided their creative force. It can almost make us feel, if you read enough of those quotes over and over and over again, and you begin to look at the accomplishments of these people, it can lead you almost to the point that you would feel as if demons, whether they were personal or spiritual, aren't necessarily that bad as long as we can control them towards our desired ends. And into this, our own cultural and social moment comes the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man in Gerasene. Yes, you've been pronouncing it incorrect your whole life. It's like jiff. It's not a gif. It's a jiff. This G is really soft like a J, so it's Gerasene. I listened at least four times to the pronunciation to make sure I wasn't mishearing. 
Jesus heals this demon-possessed man in Gerasene. And Jesus doesn't see the demons and their ongoing terrorizing of the man as something to be endured for creativity's sake or any other reason. Rather, he sees it as something to be ended by his power and his power alone. Our Savior doesn't come to coddle his enemies, but he moves to display the beginnings of his plans to conquer them and liberate those who have been bound by the strong man of this age. Let's pray. Father, we come to you aware that we live not just in the physical world that we can perceive with our senses, but we also live caught up in a spiritual world where there are things going on that are beyond our ability to see with physical eyes that are playing out in each of our lives and in the lives of the people we love and care for. It's even playing out on a grand scale in the plans and the failures and the successes of nations across the earth. And so, Father, we just pray that you would make us aware, that you would give us a healthy awareness, a biblical awareness of what it is to understand how the demonic is still active, but how you have already displayed your power over them. And most importantly, because of the finished work on the cross, we know that their defeat is done already. And so we need not live in fear, but we do need to live within awareness. An awareness that would make us more effective in our prayers, for both for ourselves and for others, an awareness that would make us uh, more compelled to share the gospel with others, uh, and an awareness that would allow us to live not from a place of fear, but of a, from a place of faith. And so, Father, by the power of the Spirit at work in each of our lives, would you help us to see and recognize those things? In Christ's name, amen. This is what Mark records in Mark 5, 1 through 5. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Jesus and his disciples have just endured a night of storms on the sea, and they bring the boat safely to harbor. And you would imagine if you were them, you would be anticipating like a recovery day, like, hey, let's get our feet under us. Let's find a good meal to eat. Let's take like a good, solid, maybe four-hour nap, and then let's eat a little more, and let's go to bed for the night. And then we'll really pick up our ministry with the Gentiles starting tomorrow, right? Like when we used to travel for mission trips we would always get there a day early because you don't want to get there tired and have to start working the next day. You need the kind of that buffer day of like, man, let's rest and then let's start. And you got to imagine that that's part of what the disciples had in mind. But it's not the case because as soon as their feet hit the shore of Gerasene, a madman, by every conceivable definition of the word, begins to make his way toward them. And Mark provides us with a detailed explanation of the man's condition. Mark puts more details here than at any other point in any story he has told us so far about a person seeking healing in the gospel. This demon-possessed man, and I want to stop there, you got to, you, we've got to work to not sanitize this in our mind. This guy would not have approached Jesus and the disciples in a calm, orderly manner. He would not have just kind of walked up like, hey, so what are you guys, you guys new here? Like, can I get some help? Like, 
I think sometimes when we, when we think about the demon-possessed man here, we think about how we see those who are mentally ill portrayed on TV. They're not necessarily dangerous. Or we think about maybe somebody like this man as like a, a panhandler in a big city who's poor, kind of looking for a handout. This guy, from what Mark tells us, is none of those things. This is a madman who the whole village and town around where he lives, they live in solid fear of this man. He screams loudly at night and during the day. He's got scars up and down his arms and probably across most of his visible body where he has cut himself. He's lived untold numbers of years from, with emotional, physical, and spiritual and financial isolation. He has, he's probably doesn't know or remember what it's like to be touched by another human being. When he makes his way towards Jesus and the disciples, I would think we would be right to picture him in an all-out sprint, probably screaming in words that make no sense to anyone. It was not a moment of calm collection on the disciples' end. You, you ever been to like a wedding where it's time to throw the bouquet and all the guys walk out there and then they've all talked beforehand and right as they get ready to throw the bouquet, like everybody steps back except the one guy they didn't tell and he's kind of left standing there like, oh man, like you can picture that with the disciples. Like they're standing there with Jesus like, oh yeah, and this guy gets closer and closer and they are like, ah no, let's let Jesus handle this one guys. And so Jesus receives this man, which is already a show of mercy on God's behalf. That he was even allowed to get close and to seek help from Jesus. Because everyone else, if he would have approached them, they would have turned and ran. There would have been no sense in even receiving him to minister to him or to care for him. Their minds would have already been made up that he was beyond help, and they would have turned and walked or ran away. And Jesus already is extending mercy to the man by allowing him to be in his presence. And Jesus begins the work of healing him. All of this description that Mark provides reminds you of Jesus in John 10, 10, where he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This man's life has been stolen from him. He is slowly dying and the end game for the demons is to destroy him in his entirety. There is no sense of, well, we're just going to aggravate him for a few more days and then we're moving on somewhere else. They've got this guy in their grasp and they have no plans of letting go. What's clear is that this man has been reduced to very base animal instincts. The ESV study Bible points to this when it says the goal of demons is to destroy the person created in the image of God. The man's demonization is evident in his social isolation, superhuman strength, and self-destructive tendencies. In the sad, bleak picture of this demon-possessed man, we are reminded that Satan, his demons, and our sins aren't docile house pets who occasionally snap at us like a dog we're not sure how to approach. Rather, they are active enemies to the kingdom of Christ and are quite literally hell-bent on destroying those made in God's image since they know they cannot destroy God himself. Think about all the suspenseful movies you've seen where there's a, one person, one family in power and those people are well protected and they can't be touched. 
So what does the enemy of that person do? They go after the weakest and the vulnerable. They go after someone in their family as a way to get the attention of the one that they really want to do business with. In much the same way, the demons know, Satan knows that they cannot overpower God. But they can wreak havoc on those who are made in his image. They, while they may not be able to ultimately defeat God, they can make those made in his image look more like them than they look like the one in whose image they were created. Peter sounds the warning about this for each of us in 1 Peter 5, 8, about this idea that Satan and demons and sins aren't to be taken lightly when he says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I'm going to be real honest. I very rarely, I'll, I'll be comfortable to say I've never seen anyone in the position that this guy's in, ever. Not even in like the best that Hollywood can think of about what demon possession would look like. Can you see anything that would remotely allow art to correctly portray life for this man? And so I think our tendency is to go, well, I've never seen it, therefore it's still not an issue today. But it is because everywhere that sin persists, and everywhere that there's someone who's not trusted in Christ, then what is at work in their life is the same power, probably on a much lesser degree, but the same enemy is still working in their hearts and in their lives to destroy the image of God that they were made in. And you may think, well, what about me? Like, is that true for me? Well, I've got good news if you're a believer in Christ. If you are a true believer in Christ and the Spirit of God is inside you, then you cannot be possessed by a demon. It's just not possible because the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness do not coexist. And while we have sin in ourselves that we still struggle with, you're not under any threat, if you're a true believer, of being somehow overran and possessed by a demon tomorrow. But here's what I believe is true as we think about our own sins and as we think about the reality that even though this looks different in our day and age, there's still the reality that Satan and his minions want to incapacitate us in our effectiveness for ministry. They're not idle bystanders in our life. And one of the best ways to begin to understand how some of this plays out in our day-to-day -day life is to read C.S. Lewis' classic, The Screwtape Letters. In the Screwtape letter, C.S. Lewis has an inventive conversation where Screwtape, an older, um, is Screwtape the younger one? That's right. I've, I've, I've had those backwards in my mind all day and I didn't put it in here. Screwtape, this older established demon, is writing to his nephew, for lack of a better term, Wormwood. And what he's doing is he's trying to instruct Wormwood in how to be an effective demon for the cause of the devil in the world and it's odd because when you read it for them the enemy is God they're trying to figure out okay well how do we stop those who have trusted in Christ from being effective for the kingdom and in one particular letter within the book this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wondering attention you no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. 
You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but also in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering or partying, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room or I would add at a cell phone screen. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at last he may say, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. And I believe that is the great danger for each of us in here who are believers in Christ. Is that Satan and his demons would move in such a way that they would be able to just dull our senses. Keep us up late at night. Keep us interested in reading good books that would distract us from prayer. Keep us from ever doing anything that matters for eternity. Because if Satan can't possess you, Satan will distract you. And sometimes the hardest thing to determine is what is a good thing and what is the best thing in the life of a believer. Because reading a good book is not the issue. The issue is allowing the good book to replace the better practice of prayer. The, the issue is not having a good meal with your family and friends and staying up late into the night talking and laughing. The issue is allowing that to be a substitute for communion with God himself. And so I think we would do well to pray and be mindful of and maybe track how much of my life am I giving to these things where one day I would look back and say, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. And I would add to the end of that sentence, nor what we were commanded to do by Christ. And so while this can look and feel different when we read Mark 5, 1 through 20, I think there's still a very present threat for each of our lives to understand how the enemy wants to incapacitate us. But we are not left just here where this demon-possessed man comes up and asks for help. We get more to the story. This is what Mark continues to write in Mark 5, 6 through 13. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. In a last-ditch effort to maintain control of the situation, the demons called Jesus by name, which when we looked at it earlier in Mark, we know was an attempt by the demons to exert control over Jesus. In ancient exorcisms, the exorcist and the demon would try to figure out the other's name because once you knew the name, then you were supposed to have power over the one trying to work against you. And so this demon comes up, and with a loud voice, he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's a futile attempt to try to establish power over Jesus. 
it brings to mind the off-repeated line from Nigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. You keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. They keep trying to call Jesus by his name, and it's just not going to work. But Jesus does have an exchange with the Spirit before sending him out of the man. Normally, in what we've read so far, the demons come, they confess Jesus in an attempt to gain control. Jesus has zero conversation. He just casts them out. But here Jesus, in a safe thing only for the Son of God to do, enters into a conversation with the demon in the man. And he asks, what's your name? And the Spirit says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, we've seen Jesus easily handle what we understand to be a single evil spirit. But what about spirits that would number in the three to 6,000 range, which is what a Roman legion would consist of? Will it prove to be too much for the miracle worker from Galilee? Has Jesus met his match? The answer, plain and simple, is no. There will be no overpowering of Jesus by the demonic spirits because they aren't equals. This is like Ramsey coming up to me and saying, Daddy, I feel really strong. I think I can kick you out of the house. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, because we're not equals. This isn't a fair fight. You're never... Now, may, she may grow up and I may get a little weaker than I am and she may be able to beat me up. I don't know. But there's no threat of that in the life of Jesus as it pertains to the work of Satan in the world. And I think sometimes we struggle with this because we often have thought or heard it taught that Jesus and Satan are in some arm wrestling match. And they're like struggling over the fate of the world. Mark says over and over and over again, no, that's not, there, there's no fight going on. When it comes to having power over one or the other, there is no life or death struggle where Jesus and Satan are using the earth as a place to prop their elbows so they can see who can finally win. This is no match for Jesus. Jesus, as God in the flesh, stands in complete control and exerts divine power when he commands the spirits to leave the man. James Edwards, in his commentary, says, The power to prevail over the demonic resides within Jesus himself. He speaks and the demons are expelled. His word is deed. An ancient exorcist would have called on some other god or some other entity to help them with expelling a demon if they were actively involved in an exorcism. Jesus doesn't have to appeal to anyone because Jesus is God in the flesh. And within his person, he has the power to prevail over the demonic. So whether a single evil spirit or a large demonic detachment... Their control, their control and expulsion doesn't cause Jesus to break a sweat because his power is so much greater. And that's something we have to understand in reading Mark 5, 1 through 20. The overwhelming power of our Savior. There's nothing that threatens him. There's nothing that threatens him in nature. 
There's nothing that threatens him in the spiritual world. There's nothing that threatens him in your life. There's nothing that you will experience in your life that will have the power or the ability to thwart or overthrow your Savior's plans for your life. There's nothing that will ever happen in all of history that will stop God from achieving his plans for the world. God is going to faithfully bring history to its rightful conclusion when Christ returns and puts all of his enemies, including death, under his feet in complete and total victory. You have to understand, Mark wants us to see and understand the power of Jesus that's at work. But the evil spirits, they make one last appeal that Jesus not send them out of the region, but that he send them into a herd of pigs nearby. Living this side of the cross in the proclamation that all foods are clean, it is a glorious waste of bacon. Amen? Like, this is 2,000 pigs that we're talking about losing. That's no shortage of really good bacon and sausage and pork chops and those things. But they ask to be sent into those pigs. And strangely enough, Jesus gives them what they ask for. Which seems odd, right? Like, why are you talking to them? And then why do you give them what they ask for? Like, why not banish them back to the pits of hell and never allow them the opportunity to work again? Like, what's, what's the plan here, Jesus? I mean, I think I would have at least had that question after the fact. Like, can you maybe give us a heads up next time you're going to actually, like, do work with talking and granting these demons requests? But Jesus sends them in to the pigs just like they asked. Those pigs numbered around 2,000 in total. And the shock and disorienting nature of being possessed by demons causes the pigs to rush down the bank and into the sea where they are destroyed. Like it, It's hard to even get our minds to picture what that scene must have been like. That you're standing there, there are these free-ranging pigs on the hillside. You've got this demon-possessed man in front of this teacher who you maybe have heard about but you've never seen. He's talking with this demon-possessed guy. All of a sudden, he says, come out. Out they go. And the next thing anyone can see or perceive, these pigs go haywire and they go down the hill and into the sea where they are destroyed. Like that, you... That is mind-numbing to think about. Like, I don't even know how I would react. If it was today, it'd be cell phone footage, and everybody would just assume it was doctored and wasn't real, and we would have all these conspiracy theories, and people would be mad that pigs were whatever. It would just be a mess if it happened today. But that's the reality of what they face. So why does Mark include these details? Why does Jesus appear to be giving the demons what they want? I think there are at least three reasons why Mark includes the detail, especially concerning the pigs. One, Jesus, by sending the demons into the pigs, proves the total number of demons that were actually tormenting the Gerasene man. This is a way to show the overwhelming power of Jesus. If you can send those demons out and 2,000 pigs end up in the sea dead, you know that you're not dealing with someone who was on a was on a one-to-one, man-to-man battle. Jesus, as one, overwhelmed demonic forces enough to cause 2,000 pigs to be rushed headlong into the sea and die. Number two, if you were a Jewish person hearing Mark's gospel read, 
after Jesus has, ascended, has resurrected and ascended and the gospel begins to spread, if you're a Jew living out among the Gentiles and you hear Mark's gospel read, it would make sense to you because it would have seemed right for Jesus to heal the impure man who lived among the impure tombs by sending the impure spirits into the pigs who were deemed impure by the Mosaic dietary laws. Everything Jesus does checks off and does not violate the law of Moses. An impure man living among impure tombs with impure spirits has those spirits sent into impure pigs and they are destroyed. But there's a third reason, and the third reason is the main reason Mark includes this story. It points us back to the history of Israel. And when we opened up Mark, we talked about how Mark is working to establish Christianity as a continuation of the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Mark is working to point to the fact that Christianity isn't a new religion. Christianity is the continuation or the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Because in the first century, you needed age on your side. It's the antithesis of how we think about life today. For us, new is always better. Old is always to be questioned, to be doubted, to be cast aside. But in the first century, new was always to be questioned. New was always to be doubted. New was always to be cast aside. And so Mark is working to tie the threads together to help us see who Jesus is, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pointed to. Most often, Mark will do this by referencing the prophetic work of Isaiah. And there's a theme that runs through the 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And that theme that picks up and carries through all 66 chapters is the theme of a new Messiah coming to lead the people of God in a new exodus. And this is why we get the picture of the pigs drowning in the sea. You have to combine or put together, as Mark constructs it, the scene that happened just before of Jesus commanding the sea and the pigs drowning in the ocean to see how, if you're a Jewish listener, you would understand this to be pointing to the first exodus. This is where the NIV study Bible is very helpful when it says, Only once has Israel seen someone command the sea, and then immediately after witness the drowning of a powerful, hostile force within it. Jesus, in this new exodus, has repeated that iconic moment, but it now involves Israel's true enemies, demons, not nations. So you have to take Mark together, and this is one of the things about how we work through books of the Bible together. It's how we read the books a lot of these Gospels and a lot of what's included in the Scriptures were all meant to be read and heard in one sitting. They weren't meant to be broken up like we're going to be in Mark for 39 weeks total. Mark's not meant to be taught that way, but we're going to do it because we have the ability to do it and we want to gain some understanding. So if you're listening, you would have heard Jesus calming the storm and then you would have immediately heard about these enemies being drowned in a sea that was just calmed. And it would be an immediate easy put together. Oh, this reminds me of when Moses stood on the edge of the Red Sea and God in power commanded the Red Sea to part and it parted and the Israelites get through just fine and then God throws the Egyptians into confusion and causes the water to crash over them and they are all drowned in the sea. And Jesus repeats it and says, look, your real issue is not nations. 
your real issue is the enemy of your souls, and I'm going to defeat even him. But, while it is true that Satan, sin, and death are our true enemies, Jesus is also making a statement about the end of all earthly kingdoms and empires when he sends the spirits into the pigs. Again, we talked about this earlier in Mark. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, he is announcing a rival kingdom to every nation and every empire and every earthly kingdom that will ever exist. There is the wrong side of history, which is every institution, government, and country that's ever existed that sets itself up in some way or another as opposed to God. And then there is the kingdom of God. And so everyone either lives for one kingdom or the other. You either live for the kingdom of God or you live opposed to the kingdom of God. But these people knew the real threat, the real pressure of Roman rule over their life. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is painting a not-so-subtle picture for the first hearers and readers of this gospel, but for us, a pretty subtle picture of his intentions to one day overthrow all things to establish the kingdom of God. Leroy Hazinga ties it all together in his commentary when he says this, The scene reminds the reader of the drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, and so we have here the theme of Mark's new exodus. And... Given the demon's name of legion and the boar as the symbol of the nearest Roman legion, the scene suggests Jesus will one day triumph over the earthly oppressors as well, not only the demonic oppressors behind them. So these Gentile people live near a Roman legion outpost. This demon's name is legion. Jesus sends the demon, demons into pigs, and it's not by coincidence that it's not a, like a flock of chickens. Because just somewhere within the vicinity where they could see, every time a Roman guard went out detached from this legion, they went with a flag and with something on their shield or on their body with a wild boar picture. And Jesus is saying, don't mistake the fact that I've not only come to do business with the demonic rulers in this present age, but there will also come a day when every other kingdom and every other empire will bow the knee and will be destroyed as I establish my kingdom on earth. And it's a reminder, look, you don't have to be on social media longer than about three seconds to realize maybe we live in a politically charged environment. I don't know. Maybe. Okay, we do. Here is one of the greatest ways for you to begin to understand how to faithfully engage in the political world as a believer. Your hope is not in the stars and stripes. Your hope isn't in the Republican Party or in the Democrat Party or in the Independent Party. Your hope is not in socialism or capitalism. All of those things are going to go away. Our first and primary allegiance is to Jesus and nothing else. It's not, well, that's first and primary, and then you get the options of like, well, two, three, and four. That's not how the kingdom of God operates. Your primary and only allegiance is to Jesus, or it's not. And I think so much of our understanding, so much of maybe our fears about what may happen in any given election, in any given year in our country, 
a lot of how we begin to understand and work through that faithfully and well, how we become responsible citizens of the kingdom of God living within the kingdom of the United States or the nation of the United States, is to remember the fate of America is the same fate of Rome. The fate of America is the same fate as what was once the Great Britain Empire. Roll into your history book and look at any empire or any nation or any expansive rule. Our nation is going to face the same end as the rest. It will be used by God to accomplish purposes within the world, and then it too will give way to the ruling and reigning of Jesus in his kingdom and his kingdom alone. And so we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live putting all of our hope in elected officials. We live with a calm, quiet confidence in our Savior who sits on his throne, ruling the cosmos with no one around to threaten his power at any point. And so it means we don't have to hate Republicans, and we don't have to hate Democrats, and we don't have to hate really anybody. Because we know and we understand that Jesus is more concerned with the redemption and the restoring of the image of God in one person than he is about the fate of America as we know it today. And understanding that and reminding yourself of that over and over and over again helps you live as a faithful witness to the gospel in a very calloused and jaded and polarizing society. It makes the life you live attractive. So Jesus sends them into the pigs because he wants the readers then and us now to know and understand there's nothing that will ultimately stand up under the weight of Jesus' kingdom coming to the earth. And then this is what we read in the last of the verses for today. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The pig herders or those around, after maybe being jarred back to their senses, immediately begin to scatter into the surrounding cities and areas to tell others what they've just seen as well as they could convey it. And they begin to ask them to come see for themselves because this was a notorious man who lived out there among the tombs. And so you would just say, hey, that guy got healed. You need to come see this. It wouldn't take much to get into the full details before people's interest would be piqued and they would start coming out. And when they return, the man once feared by all is now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Without a doubt, this moment defied all of their ability to comprehend, much less put into words what all had happened. Others from the surrounding towns and regions come out to see if what they has been breathlessly relayed to them is in fact true. And one by one as they come up on the scene and they see this once possessed man sitting there clothed and in his right mind, stunned silence begins to filter through the gathering crowd. 
as the fear once reserved for the demon-possessed man is now directed towards Jesus. In much the same way that the spirits beg Jesus to not torment them, so the townspeople beg Jesus to leave the area. And you can kind of understand this, right? You've never seen this guy before. He comes up, does this deal, heals this man. And you're like, uh, what power is this guy work? Like, what? Nah, we're good. You don't need to stay here. We, we can make it on our own. If somebody else gets demon-possessed, we'll send for you. But you're free to go ahead and leave. So there's this healthy fear of the power of Jesus. But there's also this fear of how else will he harm our local economy. 2,000 pigs at any point anywhere in the world throughout the history of time is not a cheap or easy thing to replace. Jesus, to heal one man, you have to think through this just as a general understand. Jesus, to heal one man, has now perhaps put two, three, four, five families in danger of survival. That's their livelihood. You don't want that guy hanging around. What if he sends the next demon into your wheat field? What if he just sends it into the sea and all the fish that you depend on catching for your livelihood start to turn up dead? Jesus is never neutral in his interactions with people. There is always an acknowledgement of God's power, and right after that, there always will be a consideration of the cost. Jesus and Mark don't spend much time on the 2,000 pigs because for them, that's a small price to pay to have one man returned and healed and freed. But I think we're wise to pause and go, do I have more of the townspeople's faith in me than I realize? Does the power of Jesus just really terrify me? Am I not 100% sure of what he maybe would do in my life? And on the heels of that, we start to hedge our bets and go, well, this is going to cost. How much? Doesn't Jesus know I've got plans for my life? If I follow him, he might endanger my family. If I follow where he asked me to go, it may mean giving up what I thought were his plans for my life all along. And so notice, the demons beg not to be tormented. The townspeople beg not to be bothered by Jesus any longer. And then there is the one who was healed. As Jesus and his disciples make their way to the boat, the healed man begs to be with Jesus as a disciple. And what is Jesus' response? Before, he has always commanded those who were healed or the demons to silence. Does he welcome him into the fold as a disciple and invite him to join them in their ongoing ministry? No. Jesus tells the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Without questioning or arguing, Jesus' command, he turns and heads for the surrounding area where he shares all that Jesus has done for him. Everyone who hears marvels, and the testimony of this one man begins to prepare the Gentiles for the message of the gospel that will soon reach their ears and by God's grace their hearts. The demons beg not to be tormented. The townspeople beg Jesus not to stay. And the one healed begs to be with Jesus. That's the one we would expect to go right, right? 
You're like, man, if this guy's begging to be, truly Jesus ain't going to be like, nah, man, stay here. That's what Jesus does. He does Jesus isn't worried that this man's somehow going to get repossessed by the demons he just destroyed. Jesus knows that to bring a Gentile with him at this point in his ministry would do more to harm the work he was intending to do in Israel before his death on the cross. And so to bring a Gentile was to subvert his own goal of going first to the nation of Israel with the message of the kingdom. And so he says, no, you're going to stay here. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go tell everyone what I've done for you and how I've had mercy on you. And here's how this looks for us today. If we're a believer, we have a longing to be with Jesus. We know that this isn't all there is to life. We have an ever-increasing, sometimes not increasing, sometimes it feels like a decreasing, but we have this ever-growing desire to be with our Savior. And if you're still alive and breathing right now, then he has told you the same thing he told the one he healed on the shores of Gerasene. Go and tell about the mercy that I have had on you. Go and tell about the mercy I've had on you. And we go and we tell. And when we're done, he's going to call us home. He ain't going to forget us. He ain't going to overlook us. It isn't going to be that somehow we didn't do enough for him to really care about us. If he has loved you and he has saved you, he cares about you and he's going to see you safely home. But for right now, he's told you to go and tell. And here's what we're to go and tell. We're to go and tell the mercy Christ had on us in forgiving our sins. Everything else should point back to that truth. But here is where we get evangelism wrong. We think to go and tell is to tell about the specific way that we saw God act in mercy in our life outside of the forgiveness of sins being the primary way we've known the mercy of God. And so our evangelism starts as this one maybe dramatic thing that God rescued us from, i.e. demon possession or healing of cancer or any number of things that we think are the primary means of God showing mercy to us. But the objective, true gospel to be shared that we are to go and tell is that God had mercy on us in Christ by forgiving us our sins. Everything else that God does or does not do in our life should bolster and point to the fact that we know the mercy of God through the forgiveness of our sins. But when we start, and I, just when you start with a subjective prayer that God answered in your life, and you try to use that as the main way of showing how God has shown mercy on you, you set the person you're talking to up for failure because you have no guarantee that God would answer that prayer in the same way in their life. And so when you're praying for people to be healed of a disease, when you're praying for people to find a job, when you're praying for babies, when you're all these other things that are secondary things, God does show mercy to us in some of those moments. But sometimes he withholds his mercy in those moments and he never answers those prayers. Has God been any less merciful to us? No, because we know what he has done for us in Christ. And that is the gospel we are to go and share. And so it makes it so much easier to talk about the gospel when we remember that the gospel is first and foremost and only about 
the mercy that God has shown us in Christ through forgiving us our sins. Last week, we saw Jesus demonstrate his power over nature. This week, we've seen Jesus demonstrate his power over the demonic. In September, when we pick back up in Mark's gospel, we will see Jesus demonstrate his power over sickness and death. Of all the things that threaten our lives, there is none that is more powerful than the one that died and rose again to give us life. This is why Paul can write, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our It's the great hope of our souls. It's the great hope of our life. Let's go and tell others about the mercy Christ has had on us. Let's pray.